Santa Talos is back to spread holiday cheer, to crush you in the warm hearth of his fiery embrace. Please do not go. Chestnuts roasting on his open fire. Infants, it is cold outside of my body. Hephaestus bless us, everyone. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we are back to discuss some more invented toys. That's right. Uh, we're opening Santa Talos's uh, bag once more, pulling out some classic toys to discuss where they came from. Like, how do these various gadgets and novelties factor into human techno history? Uh, now, last time we talked about the discus or the frisbee. We talked about the hula hoop. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Uh, the jack. In the box, yes, and with at least two of those things, I I, I feel like there were times like there's an ebb and flow for demand. Mm -hmm. There are like moments when suddenly a toy, uh, even a classic toy that's been around for a long time, suddenly gets very popular again, uh, and and then demand goes away. And I wonder what creates those cycles. Like I remember when I was in elementary school, there was suddenly a yo-yo craze. And I don't know (laughs) if this was like worldwide, nationwide, uh, or just my school. I I don't know exactly why it was or exactly which year it was, but there was like a year or two when everybody went yo-yo crazy and then it it just disappeared. Huh. Well, I wonder if it's kind of an age thing too. Uh, I mean, just like how there's a certain age at which as a child you discover the magic of the yo-yo and it is incredibly magical. But then it uh, it goes away, uh, you know, or you or, or or at least very few individuals stick with it long term. But I know even at my son's school, they had a uh, like a professional yo-yo uh, performer come in and do some sort of demonstration about the yo-yo. Oh, I wonder if we had something like that. Maybe that caused it. But I, I do remember there was like I remember the brand names. Like everybody wanted a butterfly or oh, a I remember fireball the or yeah. something like that. Well, also, I think an important thing perhaps is that uh, certainly you have this like 20-year cycle roughly for toys. Uh, Whatever was popular 20 years ago when you were a kid, then statistically when you're having children, you uh, then return to the same toys and inflict them on the next generation. But during that time, material sciences tend to evolve, right? Uh Uh, And if not only only material sciences, but also, uh, you know, electronic gadgetry. So suddenly it's possible to have a butterfly yo-yo that uh, is not only just a yo-yo, but also has, uh, you know, this, uh, say, really gleaming plastic form, or perhaps it has lights in it now, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. What, what, what were those automatic retraction yo-yos? Do you remember those? No, isn't that just a yo-yo? <laughs> no, no, no. The, like, the yo-yo, in order to get it to climb back up the string, you've got to get the momentum just right. You've mm-hmm. got to kind of tug it, you know, at the right this is like moment. An ele- this is like an electric yo-yo? It's like the electric bicycle of yo-yos? I don't know if, know if it was electric. It might have been spring power. But basically, it was, it was automatically retracting. So you would throw it down the thread, and then when it hit the end, it would just get sucked back in. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if I approve of that. It seemed like a lot of fun. It seems more like a like like a weapon than a yo-yo. Ah, well, that, it's interesting that you should mention that. Uh, yeah. So the first toy we're going to mention here is the yo-yo, and uh, the yo-yo it is a magical uh, implement. Like any time, I don't use one daily or anything now, but every now and, use and then I'll, one. I'll happen upon a yo-yo, and I'll have to do the one trick I know how to do with it, the sort of, uh, not the standard 
but the one where you kind of roll your hand, I have no idea what the, the name of the trick is. The roll your hand, I don't know that You know, either. where instead of going, I'm doing, no, but mm-hmm. nobody can see this. Instead of going like this, you go like this. I see, yeah, yeah. like underhand instead of overhand. Yeah, uh, there's yeah, like yeah. A, more of a flourish to it. I remember the tricks everybody was trying to do when I was a kid were walk the dog, yep. where I guess roll ahead of you or something. Uh, then they would do like the, they'd like make a cat's cradle with the string while it's still spinning. Yeah. And the thing is nowadays on YouTube, uh, you can go and look up yo-yo tricks and yo-yo tricks are amazing. Like there are people doing incredible things with yo-yos and yo-yo related uh, toys. Mm-hmm. So the, the basic though is pretty standard. The toy consists of two discs that are connected by an axle with a string looped around the axle. You unwind it, the yo-yo spins down, and then it spins back up. That is the basic yo-yo trick. Yeah, and I would say that's good enough. If you never learn any tricks, the yo-yo is still pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where does this come from? Well, let's start with the American history of the yo-yo because a lot of these toys, just as in the last episode, there's kind of the American history and then there's kind of the global history of it. Mm -hmm. But the American history of these toys tends to sort of dominate our current understanding of them, uh, generally because they ended up being revamped by various American toy companies. Yeah. So they Amer- made a lot of money. Yeah, and made a lot of money form, in doing yeah. so. And then and generally got to rename them. And this is an, another case uh, where something like that comes into place. So the American history of the yo-yo is often tied back to the 1920s. And one of the key names here is Donald F. Duncan, the founder of Duncan Toys Company. And uh, you know, I'll refer back to Charles um, Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things. And he points out that Duncan took inspiration, supposedly, for his yo-yo from observations of the Philippine hunting weapon known as a yo-yo, hmm. um, as it was known in uh, the, the Tagalog language. Uh, and this would have been, I read, a larger wooden take on the basic concept with the um, the twine intended to wrap around a prey animal's legs. So it's more like a bolus, basically. Right, like the weapon that is uh, sort of two balls on a string and you throw it and it's, uh, I guess, can get tangled up in an animal's legs and trip them. Yes. So sometimes you'll you'll find accounts that point to Donald F. Duncan as – an inventor of the yo-yo or like the key uh, modern innovator of the yo-yo. But uh, this appears to not be truly the case. It appears that a Filipino immigrant by the name of Pedro Flores actually brought the invention to the toy market in Santa Barbara and ran the yo-yo manufacturing company. But then he sold his interest in the company and the trademark to Duncan, who then marketed it heavily. Um, but but even uh, Flores hadn't been the first person to patent some form of yo-yo technology in the United States. A form of Bandalore had been patented already, which is a, a very similar uh, gadget. But more to the point, the basic yo-yo toy predates all of this, uh, even seemingly the Filipino weapon, because there are Greek vase paintings from uh, around 440 BCE that depict the use of a yo-yo. Wow. Yeah. And the Chinese had an ivory and silk cord version of uh, basically the same device as early as 1000 BCE. And uh, earlier versions date back to um, uh, the the Neolithic um, Himudu civilization, uh, potentially from uh, 5,500 BCE to uh, 3,300 BCE, where it may have spun off from spinning top technology, which I think is interesting to note because the yo-yo – you can, you can watch a yo-yo in action and then you can watch a spin top in action mm. and you can realize that they're both basically 
uh, revolving around the same principle, mm -hmm. the idea of using a, a length of, of string or twine to spin another physical object. Uh -huh. In the top, you're spinning it on the ground, uh, but then the yo-yo is taking uh, basically the same concept and applying it above the ground. Uh -huh. and, and they're both benefiting from the kind of magic that – that appears to happen when you preserve angular momentum. In a way, I don't know if they technically count, but they're they're sort of analogous to the um, the, the mechanical object, a flywheel, which you mm -hmm. know it, it preserves the ability to do work in angular momentum stored in a rotating object. Yeah, um, to sort of um, uh, abuse uh, uh, the pun a little more. Basically, this the toy is a spinoff of emerging uh, technology of the time. Uh huh. Uh, and, and it also, I think, it's the point that you know, toys are not merely toys. You know, you, you, they don't exist in isolation. They're they're directly connected to advances in technology, material sciences, etc. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was looking a little bit more about um, about the Chinese top. I was looking at a paper uh, titled "The Chinese Top," published in 2008 in the Chinese Journal for the History of Science and Technology uh, by Yanping et al. And uh, they point that, yes, the likely origin is roughly 5,000 BCE or thereabouts during uh, the Hamudu civilization. But actual writings on tops and diabolos don't emerge until the Song uh, in Ming Dynasty. So that would have been the Song would have been 960 through uh, 1279 and the Ming Dynasty uh, 1368 to 1644. Now, what's the deal with this uh, Diabolo or Diablo? So it is if, – if you look up uh, Di, uh, Diabolo on uh, on YouTube, for instance, you'll see plenty of videos of people using the, the, the toy, the, the, the technology. And it is a, a standard – essentially, you can think of it as like a Chinese yo-yo. You may have even seen one before at, say um, – you know, a, a, an Asian cultural event like a street festival, mm -hmm. and uh, you might have thought to yourself, "Oh, it's like a Chinese yo-yo or something." Uh, the, but they're often uh, the, the person using the yo-yo often uses sticks as well, uh, and it's it's widely used often as a kind of a circus prop for really elaborate tricks. The main difference is that it's instead of it being two discs. Joined by an axis, it's two hourglass shapes bridged by an axle and then manipulated with, um, you know, with the string and with sticks to perform a variety of tricks. Uh, and today you'll find plenty of, um, of uh, Diabolo models wherever you might uh, order a Western yo-yo. Like it's typical. If you're a yo-yo manufacturer uh, of note, you probably you offer this model as well. Here. <laughs> yeah. You want to be the master of all like – <laughs> above ground spinning top like toys. Uh huh. We've cornered the angular momentum market. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's I – th I think one of the reasons the yo-yo is such a, a successful toy and has been for so long is because it, it, it fits that classic trope of being something that is very easy to use but then difficult to master. Like there's a lot of depth that can be added. You can, you can get off at the first stop on the yo-yo uh, train or you can ride the yo-yo train all the way to the end and become one of these masters of string and spin. I wonder if there's a way of studying exactly what it is about the uh, the mechanical action of certain toys bringing such pleasure. Like, like why is it in particular that, uh, say, two spinning discs on a string or a paddleboard ball or something like that, like that it just normal physical interactions bring such visceral pleasure, whereas other random combinations of objects don't necessarily, like, say – a stick with the string on the end with a rock on it. <laughs> you, you don't think that would be very fun. 
But why would a, a, a but a paddleboard with a bouncy rubber ball is fun, and there's some difference there in like how it feels in your hand and how it bounces. But like, what makes one thing fun and another thing not fun? Hmm, I think one possibility is is first of all, is the toy doing something or achieving something that feels. Um, slightly unnatural mm-hmm. uh, because with the, the yo-yo uh, as opposed to just a string on the end of a stick, the yo-yo returns to you and certainly it, we, we know the physics of how this works but uh, but you can imagine like the, the seeming miracle of the thing, you know, the, so the boomerang effect of, uh, of the object that you created returning to its master. And, and then I think it might be a situation too and certainly the, the more um, – clockwork our toys become, the idea that the toy is doing something on its own, mm-hmm. uh, that we've created something that has, if not you know, actual uh, mind and intent, it at least has, uh, it seems to have a certain amount of life unto itself. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could even look at something as simple as a discus or a frisbee mm-hmm. uh, in this way because it is in effect a wing and so like it sails farther than it seems like it should maybe. Yeah, I I like this idea. Having some kind of hidden mechanism, even if that mechanism is not clockwork on the inside or something, but is just some counterintuitive effect of of basic physics. And actually uh, the next toy I want to talk about I think fits into this category of doing something that's just slightly mechanically counterintuitive and that's where the fun seems to come in. But before we go there, I think we need to take a break. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online. But one cool thing we found out recently is that you can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. That's right. For instance, you could uh, use ExpressVPN to binge watch Doctor Who on UK Netflix or uh, Rick and Morty on French Netflix. Uh, you know, that's that's all you have to do is you just uh, fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location, and refresh Netflix, and you're good to go. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. So you can choose from almost 100 different countries. Just think about all the Netflix libraries you can get to. Yeah, I mean, are you a fan of anime? Well, you can use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. <laughs> uh, but it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, so Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, uh, but the reason we recommend ExpressVPN to watch shows is it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD with no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more, so you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash invention, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash invention. All right, we're back. Uh, Let's move on to our next toy. All right, so this next story starts with an American man named Richard Thompson James who was born in Delaware in 1914. And it wasn't until reading up on this guy that I realized how many mildly famous people there were named Richard James. (laughs) This is not Richard D. James, the British electronic musician, uh, also known as Aphex Twin. This is not Rick James, the super freaky musician. It is not many of the other Richard Jameses who are various kinds of politicians and scientists. 
scientists and other stuff. This Richard James grew up in Delaware, uh, went to Penn State, got a degree in mechanical engineering there. And in 1943, Richard James was working as a mechanical engineer for a shipbuilding company at Cramps Shipyard in Philadelphia. So this was in the middle of World War II, and naval technology, of course, was not just big business. It was an essential part of the Allied war effort. Uh, according to one story I read in The Atlantic by Emma Jacobs, Cramps Shipyard at this time alone employed up to 18,000 workers at once uh, dur during the height of the war. And and many of these employees, of course, were engineers working on design improvements for ships that would fight in fronts like the, the long-running Battle of the Atlantic, you know, that was going on for many years at the time. Uh, so uh, personally, Richard James was trying to design mechanisms to, quote, support and stabilize sensitive instruments aboard ships in rough seas. So you can kind of think about the challenges to fragile navigation instruments and scientific detectors that might be present aboard a battleship that's pitching around in the waves mm -hmm. or a submarine that's climbing up and down through the water column. And so he's working on this and uh, his workspace is covered in steel parts, including tension and torsion springs. And apparently one day in 1943 – Richard James accidentally knocked over a container of metal parts that he was storing on a shelf above his desk. One of these parts was a spring. And instead of just falling with a splat, the spring kind of walked downhill <laughs> in arcing steps down onto a stack of books and then onto the floor where it came to rest. And uh, according to James, he, he immediately saw the potential of a spring like this as a toy, primarily for the reason that if he were to make the spring of just the right tension and mass, it would walk around gracefully and surely bring delight to children everywhere with a simple demonstration of everyday physics. Now, obviously, I cannot help but picture Richard James here as looking exactly like the man in the uh, the old uh, MST3K rift short, A Case of Spring Fever. Uh, <laughs> no springs! <laughs> yes, a man who, uh, in, a, in a moment of weakness, wishes that there were no springs upon the earth, and then coyly, the uh, the, the spring gremlin, spirit, god, uh -huh. uh, answers this wish, grants this wish, and uh, and shows him just how broken the world would be without springs. He takes it back, says, please, Bring all the springs back. Coily just immediately <laughs> brings springs back into the world. And then he becomes a, an ambassador of springs to all his friends. He becomes a prophet of springs. It's a complete ripoff of It's a Wonderful Life, but replacing George Bailey with springs. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that is a great short. If you've never seen it, you should look it up. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Richard's wife, Betty James, uh, came up with the name for this toy by picking a word out of the dictionary, and that name was, of course, you all know it, the Slinky. <laughs> now, I think we associate that word more with the toy than we actually do with the original meaning of the word. It was a word in the English language. Merriam-Webster now defines it as stealthily quiet or sleek and sinuous in movement or outline. And I think it's more that like second definition that Betty James had in mind. But also I believe uh, she said something about it making a sound as it moved that kind of sounded like slink. Hmm. Oh, okay, that would make it makes sense. Because, yeah, the original word is more like uh... – you know, it more, it's more like it's describing a serpent or the, the tiger burning bright in the darkness of the night, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
as opposed to a, a coil of metal that uh, makes a weird noise as it goes down the stairs. But it is a kind of uh, graceful, almost kind of stealthy little noise. You think about what a slinky sounds like. It's shh, you know, you hear the mass mm-hmm. transfer, uh, and, and like like you hear the the tone of it rapidly moving as the mass transfers. Yeah, th- there is something about the sound of the slinky alone that is intoxicating, especially to a young child, but I think to adults too. Uh, but a child especially will get the slinky and begin to do the the back and forth with it, creating that sound effect mm-hmm. until adults tell them to please be quiet with that slinky. Uh, but uh, yeah, just that sound of the shush, shush, shush right. uh, going from hand to hand. And then, of course, the feel of that as well. Totally. It's it's uh, orally and tactily uh, intoxicating. It's just one of those things. I mean, kind of like a yo-yo. There's just some kind of basic mechanical action that we find very appealing and want to keep paying attention to. The slinky especially feels very organic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a way, it does – its movements do have at least slight parallels in, say, the, the world of worms and uh, even human digestion. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's it, kind of peristalsis, yeah. yeah. But the versions we're familiar with are like the later versions that were that were perfectly calibrated to work like a worm or an esophagus or however, you know. So in the years following the discovery, the, the design actually had to get there. So Richard James tinkered with it, trying to find the perfect material and design for the spring. Uh, I read that he ended up using a high-carbon steel wire about like 1.46 millimeters wide. Uh, and when he demonstrated the slinky for kids who lived in the neighborhood, they were enchanted. They really liked it. It. So Richard and Betty James, they thought, hey, you know, I think we've we've got a business on our hands. We could manufacture this toy and, and make some money. So to start a business, they secured a $500 loan from a friend. And uh, Richard contracted a machinist to build 400 slinkies to his specifications. Apparently, initial marketing wasn't easy. Uh, I was reading about this in an article on the history of the slinky uh, written by a writer named uh, Zachary Crockett. And this makes it clear that the toy was not an instant hit in the commercial sense. Like apparently some toy sellers believed the original Slinky to be kind of plain, dull or boring and couldn't be convinced that there would be any demand. Now, remember at this point, even though it was basically the same toy we have today, it was just dull carbon steel wire. There was no – there were no tie-dye colors or anything like that, which you might find on some plastic slinkies of the present. Right. Uh, But still the classic slinky, the classic uh, uh, just gray, dull slinky, like that's – I feel like that's the one that's ultimately the most intoxicating because it has that metallic sound and it has that – it has a smell. The slinky has uh a distinctive smell that is weirdly pleasing. Slinky by Calvin Klein. <laughs> yeah, it's um, oh, to slink. Like it's you know, it has kind of like that. Um, it's the metallic taste of um, of you know having bit the inside of your lip, except without mm. the pain. You know, there's something. You, you know, there, there's a taste of blood in the smell of the slinky, and uh, I, f- I feel like that's part of its weird appeal. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, I I also think that the original, uh, like the the regular dull metal slinky without all the plastic and colors and all that stuff. It is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think of it as dull, but I think maybe it had something just to do with the packaging at the time. I think they were selling it just wrapped in sort of unadorned paper, you know, like mm-hmm. they didn't have a, a colorful box or anything like that. All right. And also when the slinky is not 
in motion if it's just presented to you as this this weird uh, just a cylinder metal tube yeah, yeah. it's uh, like you, what you need is at least an image of it opening right uh, of it assuming its bipedal form mm-hmm. uh, but after a lot of early disappointment Richard and Betty James did have a major success in 1945 when Richard decided to give a live demonstration of the slinky in Gimbel's department uh-huh. store in Philadelphia during the Christmas shopping season and this demonstration included James showing how the slinky would walk down a ramp from top to bottom. So, you know, they'd set up a a plank and set it at the top and let it arc and walk all the way down. And, of course, the people there who were presumably out doing their Christmas shopping were so into it. Uh, James uh, ended up selling his entire stock of 400 slinkies in about 90 minutes. Oh, wow. And then there was a whole crowd of shoppers who wanted more slinkies. So by Christmas, they'd had more manufactured by the machinist. Uh, They sold thousands of them. And then all sorts of opportunities opened up. There was interest uh, in uh, Richard and Betty James' pitch at major uh, toy makers conventions. I think there was one in 1946. And uh, Richard James filed for a patent on his invention in August 1946 and was granted it in January 1947. Uh, Robert, I've got an illustration of the patent for you here. I think it looks essentially identical to the slinky you would buy in a toy store today. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's undeniably a slinky. Yeah, there, there's no major design difference I can tell. The thing, you know, might have changed very slightly in the gauge of the wire or something, but it's it's a slinky. It's the slinky you know. And after this, it kind of was an instant hit. So, mm-hmm. like, by 1947, the slinky was known all over the United States. It was clearly a huge success as a toy. Uh, the company owned by Richard and Betty James began to manufacture the slinkies themselves instead of going contracting with this outside machinist. They massively scaled up production, and in the first couple of years, they sold more than 100 million slinkies at $1 a piece. Oh, wow. Uh, and then, of course, there were tons of derivative toys, right? Like you've seen them, the the, cater, the slinky caterpillar, the slinky dog. Oh, slinky think, dog, like in Toy Story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, you know, there were all kinds of things like that. Um, it wasn't just the regular old slinky, but I think the regular old slinky always remained sort of a, a centerpiece of the business, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back now on all the uses I put a, a slinky to. So obviously you can do the back and forth in your hand. You can have it walk down some stairs. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, parents and grandparents love it if you find new ways to play on a, a long flight of wooden stairs in a house. Right. <laughs> um, but then there are other things, too, like the um, like sticking your arm through the slinky. Oh, yeah. And making like a robot arm, um, pretending the slinky is some sort of a communications tube, uh-huh. uh, putting it around uh, figurines and stuff. I wonder if part of the appeal of, of the slinky is that it is this – it is undeniably like a, an, a piece of industry, a piece of – industrial technology mm-hmm. that then you are free to um, play with, with your imagination. Uh, yeah, even though it's sold as a toy, it almost feels like a found toy. And yeah. isn't a found toy so much more magical, the way that a cat will love a, a crumpled up ball of aluminum foil in a way that it will never love a toy manufactured to be enjoyed by cats? Right. Yeah, I mean, in a way, really, what um, James did was he figured out how to sell Springs to children, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but not quite that. Like uh, if, I, if we were just to say that, we wouldn't be giving him enough credit because obviously he took the basic concept of the spring, worked on it, refined it to create not a true spring, but like a, a spring-based toy. I mean, it is still a spring. It's probably not a spring that would be 
I don't know, especially useful in all that many right. mechanical contexts. But but I think is you know something that is much like a slinky and about the same tension and yeah, mass and, and all that, that it, is used in a few ways. Right. I mean, it's still in its own way, it is sort of storing energy, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's just maybe not as it's not as pronounced as the spring that say uh, shoots a toy across the room or uh, you know factors into the suspension of some sort of a vehicle. Yeah. Well, well I think we. It, it, no, yeah, it is working as a spring. You know, mm-hmm. it's storing potential energy in the in the tension or, or the tension or the torsion on the wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it absolutely is a spring. Like the enjoyment we get out of it is the enjoyment of the action of a spring. But it is at least the spring uh, made into novelty. Yes, and a lot of the subsequent novelty came from like outside the original family. Like uh, I, I don't think it was Richard James who came up with like the Slinky Dog. I, I've seen that attributed. The, the Slinky Dog design was attributed to a woman named Helen uh, Malsed, mm-hmm. uh, who I, I guess came up with this idea. Um, but so you might think the story ends there, right? Fame, wealth, Slinky's a big hit. But there is actually a bizarre twist to the story of the success of the Slinky and the company that uh, Richard and Betty James founded. Once they became very successful, uh, I've read about – I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but there was apparently a lot of trouble in the family. Like Richard James apparently uh, showed off some some bizarre and and not very admirable behavior. Um, uh, One strange quote I found is uh, Richard and Betty's son, Tom – at some point said, quote, Pop used to say money means nothing to me and he would tear it up. I'd find it and tape it back together. <laughs> now, in a way, I, I have a lot of admiration for the uh, anti-materialist point of view, but not so much if that just means you end up tearing up money, which, you know, you could donate that. Yeah, there, there are other things you could do with the money that is not uh, destroying it. Yeah, uh, but then he did end up donating a lot of money. In fact, the family's entire fortune – but uh, what he donated it to was various extreme religious organizations. Uh-huh. Uh, and in 1960, Richard James abruptly left his family behind and moved to a rural area of Bolivia to join what his wife Betty referred to as an evangelical Christian cult. Uh, and, uh, and he stayed there until he died in the 1970s. But uh, after Richard left, Betty assumed control of the company that they'd founded together, and things were really rough here. Slinky sales were down by 1960. Uh, the company was deeply in debt, and Richard James had had spent all the previous years funneling away all the profits made by the Slinky into various evangelical religious sects. And uh, Betty James uh, was faced with these problems, but she actually did manage to turn the company's fortunes around. Among other moves, uh, I know she she arranged some kind of payment schedule with the company's creditors that would help them get out of debt. She increased sales by introducing new products and by commissioning a new advertising campaign, which is where we get those classic slinky TV commercials with the song Everybody Knows, Everyone Loves a Slinky. I don't know if I know that song. Who walks the stair without a care and makes the happiest sound? Bounce up and down just like a clown. Everyone knows it's Linky. The best present yet to give or get. The favorite all over town. The hit of the day when you're ready to play. Everyone knows it's Linky. It's Linky. It's Linky. For fun, it's a Oh, okay. I have, I have heard this. Yes, that jingle is undeniable. <laughs> 
You know, I just realized uh, when we when I was preparing for this that the It's Log commercial from <laughs> Ren and Stimpy is supposed to be the Slinky commercial. Oh, it's, it's, log, it's It's almost log. exactly the it's same big, song. It's big, it's heavy, it's wood. Yes, it's better than bad, it's good. Uh, <laughs> I love the It's Log commercial, especially w- the way that it says things that are just obviously untrue, like it fits on your back, it's great for a snack, it's log, <laughs> log, log. <laughs> But there actually is a way in which the parody runs deeper. The joke being uh, beyond just absurd is actually kind of insightful. Like the steel spring, like the log, is something that isn't obviously a toy at first glance. It's all about how you frame it to people. You wouldn't necessarily look at a steel spring and say that's a toy the same way you wouldn't assume a log is a toy. Uh, I think the – but the joke is that once you assert that it's a toy, the steel spring kind of works and the log just doesn't. (laughs) I don't know, unless I, I maybe I'm not looking at logs the right way. No, I mean the thing is the like the log is is just a log, uh-huh. um, whereas the slinky again it feels kind of alive. It uh, it can be manipulated in basic ways that a log cannot, and therefore the uh, the slinky lends itself to imagination play. Yeah, I, I would say that's correct. So anyway, uh, Betty James ran the company from when she took over in 1960 until 1998 when she retired. And she passed away in 2008. And uh, one interesting fact that, uh, I don't know, was interesting to me is that Slinkies always remained relatively cheap. The original toys in 1945 sold at Gimbal's for a dollar apiece. But even as of 1996, prices for Slinkies were between like $1.89, $2.69. And Betty James once told the New York Times, quote, So many children can't have expensive toys, and I feel a real obligation to them. I'm appalled when I go Christmas shopping and 60 to $80 for a toy is nothing. With 16 grandchildren, you can go into the national debt. I wonder if that's a, a, a thing a lot of parents would appreciate, that like you can actually have a toy that people get a lot of enjoyment out of and it's not like a $60 toy. Like oh, yeah. Toy. I mean, that's the best. It yeah. costs next to nothing and you and, and you got so much play out of it. Uh, whereas the worst examples are, of course, the expensive toys that don't get played with and just, uh, you know, just set there. I, I remember, though, wanting those really expensive toys when I was a kid, like wanting the, I don't know, the 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 G.I. Joe Fortress. Kind oh, of yeah. Thing. They like had the some sets. Yeah, they had some like big G.I. Joe, like Cobra um, Coliseum type structure. Uh-huh. And I had like I had a friend who had one. It was enormous. Like I wonder what how many of those they made and where they ended up. Because, yeah. But do you actually end up playing with that thing as much as you would play with a yo-yo or a slinky? I don't know. Yeah. Like take, for instance, uh, Castle Grayskull. The, the classic, uh, the, the big item originally for the Masters of the Universe He-Man action figures. Uh-huh. Um, like, I, I wonder how much I, my main memories are, are not of really playing with it per se, but of staring at an illustration of it on a box or something. Like, there's something about the the advertising for it, the idea of it, and ultimately, the you know, the pining for the thing is more powerful than the product. Yeah. Um, Whereas the Slinky, like the Slinky more than delivers on the promise on the package. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you will keep playing with the Slinky until it gets tangled up and ruined. Right. Uh, but even when that happens, you can get another one for like a buck fifty. Yeah. Uh, some people swear by the use of, of a Slinky as a, a squirrel prevention device for a bird feeder. Really? Uh, and, yeah. Instead of, um, you know, of course, you can get custom-made devices that prevent a squirrel from climbing up uh, the pole of a, a bird feeder. Mm-hmm. But uh, some say you can just uh, take a slinky and put it around the pole and have it hanging there, and then squirrels won't be able to climb it. Huh. I tried it. 
Uh, I found that it did not work for me, but maybe <laughs> I was doing too it too crafty. Wrong. Yeah, squirrels squirrels are crafty, and and they eventually, they, and at least in my case, they figured out what we were trying to do. All right, let's take one more break, and then when we come back, we will discuss another invented toy. All right, we're back. So I have to admit that I both love and hate a good jigsaw puzzle. Jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. You know you know what my association with jigsaw puzzles is? For some reason, we didn't really do them at home, but I remember the family would always do one on a vacation. Yes, yeah, like, like uh, at a beach uh, yes. house kind of an environment. Oh, you did that too? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my like my uncle and stuff I think would like get a get a jigsaw puzzle and do it on the table in uh in like a beach condo or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are a lot of jigsaw puzzles out there now, obviously. For for my money, I think a good jigsaw puzzle has to be created in line with a piece of art that I care about, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's a it's a puzzle to be solved even though you know what the solution is going to be because it's on the front of the box, but you're you're building this piece of art. So I have to care about the finished piece. And I think it also helps that the the art needs to be detailed and varied. For instance, I, I finally look back on a jigsaw puzzle that I helped assemble on a beach trip hmm. of a of the Tibetan uh, one depiction of the Tibetan wheel of samsara, hmm. which is great because it's uh, it's perfect. It has all these little details, these different scenes, all sorts of intricate little beings. And recently, my family uh, assembled a big uh, Ravensburger jigsaw puzzle featuring an original work of surreal art. Uh, Ravensburger, by the way, a major German jigsaw puzzle maker. Uh, And they also make a thousand-piece puzzle uh, utilizing the Tower of Babel by Bruegel the Elder that I'd I'd love to to take a crack at because, you know, again, an intricate piece of art with a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, But still, when I work on a jigsaw puzzle like that, I feel this weird mixture of pleasure and frustration, you know, uh, tinged with addiction uh, as I just have to keep going. Like each time I actually find a piece and, and get it in its spot. Like the, I get this, you know, release of uh, I don't know dopamine, I guess. And I have to keep going. And then I'll say, I'll just one more piece, and then I'll go back to what I, whatever I was working on. But then I, I keep going until I just run out of mental energy for the jigsaw puzzle. We need to talk about your jigsaw puzzle, <laughs> Robert. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, one more thing about just my experience of them is, of course, the ideal strategy is to assemble the edges first. Yeah. And then you work on the more notable things you can put together. Like, okay, clearly we've got uh, a bright color here or this is clear. these are clearly pieces of the same structure or creature. Mm-hmm. But then eventually you get to the point where it's just the most boring pieces left yeah. that you have to fit into the puzzle. Well, that's why I think – if if you're going to have an image for a jigsaw puzzle, it's really good if the image is busy. If yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on everywhere and there's not like a lot of blank space in it, right. that, that makes for less fun jigsaw puzzle. Uh, or for instance, I wouldn't want to do a Jackson Pollock jigsaw puzzle. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean I love the the work of Jackson Pollock. I'm not going to be one of those people who uh, you know scoffs at it, but it's one of the last things I would want to put together on a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> I would want I want little fairies and demons and uh, figures and medieval peasantry. Representative art, yeah. Yeah. So this uh, begs the question, where do jigsaw puzzles come from? Well, they actually have their origins in the 18th century creation of dissected maps. This was a novelty born out of the world of cartography uh, and uh, and also with strong connections to a European imperial zeal for national borders. Mm. As described in Cutting Borders, Dissected Maps, and the Origins of the Jigsaw Puzzle by Martin Norgate, published in a 2007 edition of the uh, Cartographic Journal, uh, 
these dissected maps were maps that were mounted on wood and then cut out along national borders, uh, which feels fittingly imperial, right? To, uh-huh. to first map the world as it is, then to divide it artificially with these different human division lines, and then to physically cut up the map, uh, slice the regions apart, and then put them back together again for amusement. It seems like an absolutely perfect outgrowth of like Eight, 18th century European culture. Right. Like suddenly jazzed up on the idea of nations with fixed borders and boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, th- this is something that a lot of people don't realize because we live in a in a world with, uh, you know, well-defined borders today. That is historically not the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the past, you just had people living in places and then there might be, uh, you know, various imperial powers exerting some kind of pressure on them and whichever one was exerting more pressure, you might consider your ruler. But like you know, people were just living in places. There, there, there often wasn't a clearly defined border or boundary. Yeah, I, uh, like some of the early examples here I'm going to discuss are specifically English, but also French as well. Mm-hmm. And so like, this is a time where to be, you know, truly uh, English was to was to be able to point to the map and say, behold, there is the there is the British Empire. Right. And, and these are, uh, you know, areas of particular interest to the British Empire. Uh, these are the enemies of the British Empire. And to, you know, to make a, a huge, uh, put a huge emphasis on these division lines and then to uh, to even teach younger people, uh, you know, the importance of all of these abstract divisions. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that goes way back in the British tradition, even to Roman Britain, like yeah. the idea of uh, uh, you know, why was Hadrian's Wall put up? Uh, there are all kinds of things, you know, ideas about defending the areas of northern England from the, the Scots of the time or whatever, the, the tribes that were occupying what is now Scotland. But there's also just an idea that it was somewhat symbolic. It's symbolizing like, OK, here is where the, the conquered, the Roman part of Britain begins mm. and we're establishing a border by the erection of this wall. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Uh, so in a way, Hadrian's Wall is the is the the the, the, um, uh, the predecessor uh, to the um, uh, to the proper jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> so um, this uh, this article by Norgate is uh, is is a wonderful um, overview, um, and he discusses first of all the, the process for making them. And this would have been rather simple if you had the right tools, and certainly if you were coming uh, uh, if you were around in the right time uh, during uh, cartographical history. The basic version is simply a paper map pasted onto wood, and then the wood is cut along the boundaries. These pieces, however, could easily warp, so additional layers tended to be added, such as paper backing. With the right tools, you could do this as a craft or even as kind of like a cottage trade. But then ultimately, industrial innovations come along that make stack cutting possible. So you can cut multiple puzzles, uh, multiple dissected maps at once. Um, And then, uh, of course, today, uh, when we get to actual jigsaw puzzles, they're typically rolled out via industrial presses and assembly lines. Lasers are even used. Does anybody still use wooden, like actually straight up wooden jigsaw puzzles? Or is it pretty much all cardboard these days? Um, you, I mean, you'll certainly find wooden, very simple wooden puzzles at times for young children. Uh-huh. Uh, but the ones that I tend to see are not like they're, they're you know a shape in a wooden hole for that shape. Yeah, uh, I'm sure somebody is making authentic uh, pieces though. 
but but originally this was more of a like a fancy thing that was created by cartographers, mm-hmm. and we, and we have some uh, you know examples that survive to to this day. In terms of where it comes from, historians often point to a British cartographer by the name of John Spilsbury, who lived 1739 through 1769, and he's sometimes credited as the inventor of the dissected map and ultimately the inventor of the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, he was an apprentice to Thomas Jeffreys, royal geographer to King George III. And surviving Spilsbury puzzles are, are quite rare, and they were not cheap uh, even at the time. They were uh, they were not intended for a mass general audience. But still, he does seem to be the first person to create them and sell them. And uh, he was certainly doing so by 1763. And then uh, after him, others follow in his footsteps, and they advance the art and the craft of this new sort of puzzle. However, as Norgate points out, he was not seemingly the first person to create a dissected map. Uh, this honor, he argues, uh, might go to Madame de Beaumont, uh, who lived 1711 through 1780, a French author and educator who lived in England from 1748 to 762. We can't be 100% certain, but she's the earliest figure uh, that we can really point to on this, apparently. Hmm. And she was certainly in the right place to fit into the history. She was governess to the niece of Lady Charlotte Finch, and Finch was in turn governess to the children of George III. And the Beaumont wooden maps, um, as they were referred to in some writings at the time, were used as educational aids because at the time it was, of course, considered important to educate English children about the the pride of their nation, its colonial ventures, and its place in the world. And at the time, educational theory had come to accept that educational instruction, such as in geography, could actually be enjoyable to a child. Hmm. You could do something that is fun or fun-ish. And uh, and and they could actually learn from it. Well, I think there are still puzzles like this today. Like I don't know if we call them jigsaw puzzles, but they are essentially jigsaw puzzles that are just maps. Like you fill in the fifty states oh, of the yeah. United States with the with the cutout puzzle pieces. Yeah, you will find uh, dissected maps. Uh, yeah. You can still certainly obtain them. Uh, of course, you can also find uh, maps as a popular. Uh, subject for jigsaw puzzles, uh-huh. uh, which we'll get to the you know the distinction here in a minute. Um, but uh, here's an interesting fact about uh, Madame uh, de, Beaumont, de Beaumont. Uh, she's actually best known for writing the most popular version of Beauty and the Beast huh. in 1756. Why did I think Beauty and the Beast was? Uh, oh, what's that? Uh, that that French. Uh, folklorist guy. Well, there was an older version of it for sure, but Uh but she uh, abridged it and rewrote it, Uh and her version apparently um, was was very well read at the time. Interesting. Uh, Interesting fact, also, while uh, in London, she was also romantically involved with French spy uh, Thomas Pichon. I've seen her credited as his wife in some sources, but it seems that they lived together but never married, and he continued residing in that home after she returned to France. Hmm. Now, how do we get from uh, dissected maps to what we now think of as uh, jigsaw puzzles? Well, uh, I want to read a quote from Norgate's article uh, because I think uh, he sums it up very nicely. Quote, the idea of interlocking jigsaw pieces was introduced in the early 19th century and was probably inspired by the shape of dovetail joints in everyday cabinet making. It was first applied to the surrounding border of the jigsaw so that the picture would not slip apart as it was being put together. The distinctive quote, barfoot interlocking of the period resembles dovetail joints with rounded corners. Later still, whole puzzles were made of fully interlocking pieces. 
So I, I think that's interesting. We see we see other innovations emerging uh, for the jigsaw puzzle out of the carpentry world. Uh, and then at the same time, these new approaches ultimately destroy the geographical educational aspect of the thing, you know, charting a new course into pure novel puzzle solving. Hmm. And yet at the same time, like we pointed out, you still can find essentially dissected maps. You can uh, Maps are still a popular jigsaw puzzle subject, but existing and custom artwork have also become a huge part of the tradition. Yeah. In a way, it reminds me of the, the journey from spring to slinky. Uh, you know, from dissected map to jigsaw puzzle, taking something that that an invention that has more of a purpose and then finding like the thing that is intoxicating about it yeah. and refining it towards that. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's exactly that kind of thing that makes it – I mean, I, I can't prove this is the case, but I sort of have a gut feeling that among toys, you are more likely to find – inventions that are uh, classed as somewhat accidental type inventions. We, mm -hmm. we might talk about more of those in the future. Uh, but the slinky is usually thought of as something like this because it wasn't something that was, you know, created originally to be a toy. It's right. like he, he saw something. He's like, that, that's kind of, that looks kind of fun. It could be a toy. Let me tinker with it, make it even more toy-like. And I guess that's because when you're talking about toys, you don't necessarily start with function. Instead, you just witness something that delights you and and you, you seize on that delight and say, how can I maximize it? Right. How can we make refined sugar yeah. <laughs> out of this thing that uh, that is bringing me pleasure? Which is funny because unlike a lot of uh, unlike a lot of inventions that solve a specific physical problem, delight is subjective, and yet there are, for whatever reason, these certain forms that tend to delight more than slightly altered versions of the same form might. Yeah. Now I will say with jigsaw puzzles, you, when you're when you're doing one, you, I mean, you do feel like you're really engaging your brain. Uh, yeah. So it. It, it perhaps doesn't necessarily feel like pure novelty, mm -hmm. uh, but yet it also is. You're, it's a it's an artificial problem that you have uh, that you are amusing yourself with. Sure, uh, it's not something that would occur in. I mean, I suppose if you were putting back together, say, a broken piece of pottery, mm -hmm. but otherwise, no one uh, comes up and says, "Oh, why is this my my favorite painting has been has been cut into a variety of interlocking shapes, <laughs> and now I must put it back together so I can observe it again." That's like some kind of like uh, Banksy performance art yeah. prank, <laughs> prank kind of thing. Yeah, that would that would be a good one. Yeah, like a self jigsaw puzzling uh, painting. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay, well, does that do it for today? I believe so. That's all we have in the toy bag for today. But uh, we're not we're not entirely certain, but we might just keep going with toys for the month of December. There are obviously more toys uh, in the history of invention, and uh, there's some likewise there's some more interesting uh, origin stories to consider. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. You'll also find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to support Invention, you want to see Invention continue in the new year, uh, the best thing you can do is make sure you have subscribed and then rate and review the show. And hey, tell a friend. Uh, spread the word. If you like Invention, uh, share it with the world. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.